Hey, well, what's up, Rocky Peak? It is very good to gather with you once again. And if you're joining us for the very first time, wherever it is your, your, your physical location is, special welcome to you. Welcome to Rocky Peak this weekend. We're glad you're here, and we're excited for what the Lord is gonna teach us as we conclude our series. My name is Dre, if we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm one of the pastors here at Rocky Peak. And kind of like Michael said, I wanna encourage you, as we go to this time, would you go ahead and grab your message note sheets? Would you go ahead and grab your Bibles, whether physical or digital? And we're gonna, I'm gonna pray and we're going to dive right in. So let's pray together. Jesus, I got to admit, there's a lot about this last week. There's a lot about these last several weeks that burden me. There's a lot that I mourn. There's a lot that brings up sadness in me. There's a lot about these last several weeks that I don't understand, that confuses me, that I don't know how to solve or necessarily know how to move forward. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus, I'm reminded of the beautiful truth that you are king, that you are in control. And as we just sang together as a church, it is your power and your power alone that can turn graves into gardens. And so as we come before you now, Jesus, whatever our physical location, whatever our emotional state, we come before you right now as a family to open up your word, which is not just ink on a page, but it is the voice of our king. It is living and active. It is the voice that gives us life. And we don't need to ask you to speak because that is what happens naturally through your word. We come before you now and say, Jesus, we are here to listen to what our king has to say. As a communicator, as I often pray the words of John the Baptist, my role is to get out of the way. My role is to point to you, King Jesus. My role is to become less and let you be more. And it's in your name, King Jesus, that we all said wherever we're at, Amen. Well, Rocky Peak, like we've been saying throughout the series this evening, or excuse me, this weekend, we're going to be concluding the series we've been in for the last five weeks or so called The Power of the Resurrection, Hope in Times of Crisis. And if you're new, what we've been doing over these last several weeks is that we've been taking a journey through the early chapters of the book of Acts in the second half of our Bible, what's called the New Testament. Now, the book of Acts was written by a Gentile doctor named Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And Acts is meant to serve as a second part or a second volume to that Gospel. And specifically in the early chapters, Luke is giving an account of what happened immediately after the resurrection of Jesus. And the heart behind this series is for us to see that the resurrection of Jesus was not the end of his life. His resurrection was not the end of his story, but rather the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of a brand new era. And in fact, as we get ready to leave this series, that phrase, that truth, a new era has been so key in these last several weeks. And in fact, it is foundational to our time today. So I want to encourage you, write that phrase down, new era, in your note sheets or in your journal or in your phone. Because this new era is built on the foundation 
that Jesus is king. That's what defines this new world we're being led into. And to say that Jesus is king carries with it an important implication that we're gonna be unpacking in our time together this weekend. To say that Jesus is king means to say that Jesus is in control of my life. To say that Jesus is king is to say that Jesus is in control of my life. And in a moment of honest reflection, Rocky Peak, there in that truth, I find it to be often a source or a point of conflict. Because the truth of the matter is that following Jesus doesn't always make sense. The truth of the matter is that following Jesus isn't always what I would consider safe. The truth of the matter is that often following Jesus means to follow his leading in a direction in which I might say, you know what, this is not how I would choose to do things. And so to say Jesus is king is another way of saying that Jesus is in control of my life. But again, I need to acknowledge, we need to acknowledge that there's a conflict in that, that often I try to be in control of my life. Often we try to be the ones that are in control of my life. Because again, I like it, we like it when life makes sense. I like it when I can wrap my mind around what's going on, when I can easily explain it, when I can see easy, non-messy, non-painful solutions to certain trials I face. I want to be in control because somehow in my pride, in my sin, I've convinced myself that if I'm in control, then somehow I can lead my life to a sense of safety. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of you out there can relate with that power struggle. And then life throws me reminders that I'm not in control of anything. That I have very little, if any, control over my life, over my, what happens, over anything. Let me give you a couple of examples. Earlier this week on Monday, I was sitting and having dinner with my family. And as I was talking to one of my kids, I bit the inside of my cheek. Now, some of you know the pain I'm talking about if you've, if you've bitten your cheek or your lip or your tongue. And it caused me to sit there and reflect and go, this is not what I wanted, and I would have never chosen this. And not only that, I started going down this rabbit hole of going, what kind of control do I have over my life that I can't even control biting my cheek? And then you know what happened to continue to humble me, Rocky Peak? Two nights later, because my cheek had puffed up a little bit, the same thing happened. If I can't even control something small like that, then what makes me think that I have much, if any, control over the major things in life. See, it can be the small that shatters the illusion that we're in control, or it can be the trials, the suffering, the seasons, the pandemics, the crises. And I cherish safety but it's in those times in which I realize how little control I have, what I realize is that the safety, what I've defined as safety, 
is really surface level and not very deep at all. And it's in those times, it's in those seasons, it's in those crises when I'm very aware that I have very little control over my life that the Lord in his providence, in his grace, gives me the opportunity to experience a beautiful truth that Jesus has an epic vision for each of our lives, which is something that we often say at Rocky Peak, but the epic vision that Jesus has for your life right now in the midst of this season, in the midst of this crisis, is for you, is for me to experience something far greater than a superficial safety. The vision of Jesus, of you experiencing an epic life, revolves around you experience a significantly deeper transformation. And for us to experience the epic vision that Jesus has for each and every one of our lives, we need to do what in some cases is the hardest and the boldest thing we've ever been asked to do, meaning we need to follow his leadership away from what makes sense away from the world that we, quote, know or can control. We need to follow the risen king into a new world, into a new era, into a new transformation. And the catalyst of following Jesus into this new era we've been talking about is loss. To follow Jesus into a new era we need to experience a significant loss in that we need to lose this struggle to take control. In Rocky Peak, it's not gonna be safe. At times it'll be confusing, at times it'll be challenging, at times it'll be painful, at times it'll be long, but it is in that loss of control, in that declaration that Jesus is king, that King Jesus will unleash new life in us. And we will no longer look to depend on the safety of our circumstances, but we will depend on the safety that our King is risen, our King is in control, and our King is good. There in your note sheet, I have what is possibly my favorite quote from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, specifically from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you're a long-time Rocky Peaker, then you know that I've shared this many times over the years. In fact, I was curious, and I looked up all of my old notes, that in the last eight years that I've been on the teaching team here at Rocky Peak, I've shared this quote on average once a year. So this is my one for 2020 Rocky Peak. And as we read that quote, Aslan, the Jesus figure in the Narnia stories, is a lion. The lion, the great lion, oh, said Susan. I'd have thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Would you underline that? But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so what we're going to see in our time in scripture today is that following Jesus isn't safe, but it unleashes a new life we couldn't ever possibly imagine before. So there in your note sheet, you got a section titled The Unexpected Expansion. If you've got your physical Bibles, open them up. Got your digital Bibles, turn them on. We're gonna be going to the book of Acts, chapter eight. 
And as you're turning there, it's important that we understand some context to really, really dig into and to make come to life what we're going to be jumping in. And so as we've seen throughout this series, the church of Jesus, the early movement of Jesus was born in a time of significant crisis. And there is intentionality in God's will and purpose in that because it's teaching them this truth in a very deep way that Jesus is in control. Now, the religious leaders at the time, the Jewish religious leaders, they had viewed Jesus as a significant threat to their power, to their way of life, to their world, to what made sense to them. And so as we see in the gospels that they read, they fought against Jesus, they led the crusade against Jesus, and they thought that his execution on that cross would have ended this so-called uprising. But as we continue in Acts, we see that not only did Jesus' death and as we know his resurrection not end this so-called uprising, but this movement continues to grow. And as the movement of Jesus is growing, so does the anger and the vitriol of these religious leaders. And so to understand this fuse that has been lit and is leading toward a powder keg, there in your note sheet, I've got a couple of just quick scenes so that we can see how this crisis is escalating. First, from Acts chapter 4, they, the religious leaders were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. When they, again the religious leaders, this is going up, skipping a few verses, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. Underline that and underline this next section, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What had changed, particularly in Peter's life, when you look at them in the Gospels, Peter, the other disciples, they often clashed with Jesus because his will didn't make sense. The direction, the future he talked about rubbed wrongly against their view of safety of what they would do. What has changed from now and then? They realize that Jesus is bigger and that Jesus is in control. And what astonished these religious leaders was now Peter and John were deeply dependent men on Jesus. And as we continue in Acts chapter five, that the high priest and all his associates who were members of the parties of the Sadducees, one of the political parties of the Jewish ruling council, they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. And then as we go into Acts chapter six, we're introduced to a second generation of leaders of the early church, one of them being a man named Stephen, who we're gonna see becomes our first recorded Christian martyr. There in your note sheet, so they stirred up, again, this is the religious leaders, they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. As we go to the next chapter, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Why did they cover their ears? Why were they screaming at Stephen? Because in the chapter before, Stephen had proclaimed that Jesus was the Lord long-awaited Messiah the Old Testament had talked about. They all rushed at him, they dragged Stephen out of the city, and they began to stone him. They murdered Stephen. 
And so again, I told you, picture all of these scenes unfolding as if they were a lit fuse leading to a powder keg. And as we start our scriptures, this powder keg has now exploded and this crisis has now escalated significantly. And so Acts chapter eight, starting at verse one, and again, have a pen ready, get ready to highlight because we're gonna mark these passages up. And Saul approved of their killing him, the him being Stephen. Would you underline Saul approved? This is the man who one day it will become the apostle Paul, but he's not yet encountered Jesus. And we're gonna come back to him. And Saul approved of their killing of him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered. Would you underline or highlight that word? Scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Verse three, but Saul began to destroy the church. Would you underline that phrase? Destroy the church church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now before we move on, we need to stop and unpack what's happening in these three verses because it is significant. And I got to be honest with you, Rocky Peak, I have been very familiar with these passages for many years of my life. I have known about the great persecution that has broke, that broke out, because, a catalyst by the death of Stephen, and yet something about what the Lord has opened my eyes to in the last two weeks as I've significantly dove into it has moved me to tears multiple times. We cannot minimize how horrific of a crisis this was for the early church. And so this persecution was a violent, not a peaceful, not a voluntary, but a violent exile of the Jewish believers out of Jerusalem. Now we're not fully sure if this was all Jewish believers or if uh, some scholars think it was what's called the Hellenistic, meaning the Greek speaking or the Greek culture Jewish believers. But again, this was a violent and a quick exit for their lives. They were separated from friends, from families, from resources, from their homes if they were local or their ability to go home. The apostles staying back does not mean that they escaped persecution, their role, their calling was to stay to help strengthen the church and they were forced to endure severe persecution as well. We saw the mourning that happened as they buried Stephen and then we get to this man named Saul. And I think it's important that we reflect on who the future apostle was before he encountered Jesus. When I had you underline destroyed the church, in the Greek, the original language that the New Testament was written in, that word destroy is not a light word. That word means to injure severely with implications both for the physical and both for the emotional. And so again, let's not minimize what's happening by Saul and these other so-called religious leaders, that they are breaking down doors. They are dragging people out of their homes. They are imprisoning people. They are leading to their death and stoning and execution. And why? 
because of their commitment to King Jesus. And I think one of the reasons why the Lord is leading me, the Lord is leading us to feel this in a new way is because this was not something that happened several thousands of years ago to a distant people. This happened to our family. This happened to Christ followers that we are linked to by the blood of Jesus. And to not only minimize this, understand what Saul was doing, this was brilliant strategy. Up to that point, the homes were the heart of the early church. It was where the church met, it was where the church gathered, it was where people gave their lives to Jesus, it was where they found prayer and encouragement and resources when they needed. It was where the poor and the rich, where the old and the young, where the man and the woman were all welcomed. And so strategically, they are striking at the heart of the church. Can you possibly imagine this happening to your house today? This happening to your life group? the doors being burst open, people dragging you, imprisoning you, leading you to your death because of your commitment to Jesus. One scholar absolutely broke me with something I'd never considered before. What do you think this house-to-house persecution did to the children that witnessed it, that witnessed their friends, their family, their parents being drugged away? And Saul was not part of the pagan Roman government. Saul and the people that were doing this viewed themselves as religious. They viewed themselves as doing this in the name of God. In fact, Paul writes later on in the New Testament after Jesus has transformed him that he felt there was no better way that he could be serving the Lord God than by literally destroying and shedding the blood of his so-called enemies. And I gotta remind ourselves of something we've been saying, not just in this series, but throughout this whole time that we've been in a pandemic, is that suffering, pain, crisis, this was not God's original intention nor his plan for us and our world. This is the result and the destruction of sin entering into our lives and our world. But Jesus is king. Jesus is good. Jesus is in control. And so while this was not God's original intention for us, Jesus will still use it to bring about a greater good. He will use it to defy the devil. He will use it to bring life in what was meant for death and darkness. And at the same time, understand something, Rocky Peak, that while Jesus is in control and Jesus will use it to unleash a greater good, do not think that Jesus is unfeeling to our pain and our loss. In the next chapter, in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus confronts the man named Saul, 
He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people or my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? And what does that tell us, Rocky Peak? That whatever it is that grieves you in that moment, whatever it is that you are suffering from, whatever your pain, whatever your tear, whatever your sorrow, your King Jesus is standing next to you, feeling it and strengthening us to endure it under his power. But if you're these believers that are being scattered, do you think any of this makes sense to them? Do you think any of this is what they would have chosen? Do you think any of this made them feel as if they were even a little bit in control? And yet as we read verse four, we see something extraordinary. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Again, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Would you underline that? Would you highlight this is extraordinary to me? Again, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they had went. And so the early church of Jesus was experiencing significant pain, significant loss. And what do we see? That in the midst of pain, in the midst of loss, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of anger, in the midst of frustration, in the midst of not knowing what was gonna happen next. What did they choose? They chose dependence on King Jesus and it was in choosing dependence that they were unleashed, that they experienced new life. And the church of Jesus did not die that day. The church of Jesus grew and spread beyond any of their wildest imaginations, more so than in any of their best laid plans. And understand who we're dealing with. The believers that were scattered were not, quote, the veterans. These were not the apostles. These were not necessarily the scholars. These were the everyday believers, the normal believers. And so when it says that they preached, it doesn't imply necessarily that they were giving sermons or messages as I'm doing now, but it says that they were sharing through their lives that I don't know anything else but this. Jesus is risen. Jesus is king. He is good. He transformed my life and he transformed can transform yours as well. And the church grew. And I think what's extraordinary is the word that Luke uses. I had you underline in verse one the word scattered, and we see the same word again here in verse four. And the Greek word that he uses is the word called diaspiro. And actually what that means it's more of a gardening word. It means, the root of it means to sow, to scatter seeds, because when you scatter seeds, what are you scattering? New life and growth. And I wish we could dive more into what's going on, but I want to ask you to skip ahead to verse eight with me. Because what happens immediately after verse four is we're introduced to a leader named Philip not the apostle Philip, but again, part of the second generation, and we're given three specific insights into his ministry, into how he's been unleashed through this time of loss. And in verse eight, 
Philip had just preached the word of God. New people, non-Jewish people, Gentiles, Samaritans were now coming to put their faith in Jesus. And verse eight says that so there was great joy in that city. There was great joy in that city in the midst of terrible loss an everyday believer like Philip chose dependence on King Jesus, chose to say Jesus is in control of my life and this situation, and through that, he was not only unleashed to understand why that is the foundation of this new resurrection era, but he was able to take that, to spread that, to unleash that new life, that new era, to let it break through and do the seeming impossible, to bring new life in the midst of significant loss. Again, Rocky Peak, to say that Jesus is king is to live a life that is defined by saying Jesus is in control. And that calls us to listen and follow and leave behind the world we knew to leave behind the world that made sense, to leave behind the world in which I strive to have control and to follow the resurrected king in a brand new era. Now there's a lot that goes on in Acts chapter eight and as I often do, I would love to encourage you, we just scratch the surface. At some time in the next 24 hours, would you find yourself, would you carve out some unrushed time to sit and read the chapter in its entirety. Let the Lord speak, encourage, teach and grow you through his voice. But in the time that we have left, again, I wanna talk about this new era, what I'm calling the resurrection era, and I specifically wanna unpack three truths about the resurrection era. So there in your note sheet, you got a section titled just that, the resurrection era, and your first fill-in is this, the first truth is that a new era requires a new creation. A new era requires a new creation. And something that I've said often that's going to be familiar to many of you that have been part of Rocky Peak for some time is that Jesus' epic vision for our lives is not simply to make us slightly better versions of who we currently are. I've often, often described this that giving my life to Jesus Following and proclaiming that Jesus is king does not simply mean surface level changes. That now because of Jesus, I try to go to church more. I try to curse a little bit less. And maybe in my social media bios, I put the word Jesus or say I heart Jesus somewhere in there. Now those are great things, but ultimately what I'm getting at is that Jesus' vision is not one in which we follow him, but ultimately our world has not changed. Ultimately, the way we choose to live, to think, to act, is continue to be led by what makes sense, by what I would do. See, as we talk about a new era, we're talking about a epic vision that King Jesus has, and his vision for our lives is one of radical change. It's one of complete change from the inside out. As we're going to see, it's put, he has created a new world and he invites us to become a new creation to inhabit this new era. There in your note sheet from the ESV translation, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, not a slightly better creation, not a roughly patched up creation, but a brand new creation. The old has passed, the old world, the old value system, the old desires, the old push for that fake sense of safety, the old has passed, and behold, the new has come. And underneath that, N.T. Wright, scholar, theologian, the key thing was that the inbreaking kingdom Jesus was announcing created a new world, a new context, and he was challenging his hearers to become the new people that this new context demanded, the citizens of a new world. And so as we say that a new era requires a new creation, we're going to spend the majority of our time in the next point, which is really going to unpack what are we as a transformed, as a new creation defined by now. And so that goes to your second fill-in, which is this, a new creation is defined by a deeper dependence. A new creation is defined by a deeper dependence. And for the sake of clarity, if I had the opportunity to rewrite this, I would say that a new creation is defined by a deeper dependence on King Jesus. Rocket Peak, I want to invite you to do something for me right now. I want to invite you to repeat a phrase out loud with me. And that is this. I am not in control of life. Go ahead, repeat it. Let's do it again. I am not in control of my life. Third time's a charm. Let's try it one more time. I am not in control of my life. Now let's do a little bit of reflecting here. How did that feel emotionally? Did it feel good? Honestly, there are many of you out there that would say, actually, yeah, that was positive, that was freeing, that relieved me of stress and burden, and that's incredible. But there's also many of us out there that that did not feel good at all. And if that's you, this is the category I find myself in, that something in us, it didn't feel right, it made our mouth hurt. We felt this internal struggle to want to fight against this. What, I'm not in control? No, I've got to be in control. I'll show you in control. It just didn't feel good. And in a humorous way, if I were to illustrate what this feels like, it takes me back to an episode of my favorite television show of all time, I Love Lucy. Now, I would say that all of the episodes of I Love Lucy are iconic, but there's one particular one that I want to reference. See, they were all in Hollywood. There were several episodes that took place in Hollywood, and Ricky thought he was getting fired by his movie studio. And so Lucy, as Lucy often does, devised a scheme to try to show the head of that studio that he shouldn't lose Ricky. So she went and found some random guy, who she found out later wasn't random guy, but she went and found some random guy and tried to coach him to pretend to be another, a rival studio head, to say that he wanted Ricky to show how in demand 
Ricky is. And so as she's coaching this, who she thought was an actor, to be this studio head, one of the things she wants him to say, and money is no object. And he tries to, but he struggles. He humorously goes, and mmm, and mmm, and mmm. And finally, he says this, and he opens and licks his lip, kind of the choppy, and he says, man, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth, doesn't it? And the reason why I think of this, the reason why I use this as an illustration is because what does that highlight? That that made no sense with the way that he, how he thought the world worked. And again, one of my struggles in my pride and my sin is that I want to be in control because I feel, again, somehow my pride convinces me that if I have control, then maybe I could find a sense of safety, a sense of happiness. But again, trials reveal that truth. I am not in control. And it doesn't feel good. Because when I realize I'm not in control, I realize just how limited I am as a person. And it's in this loss, because that's what it is, it's loss, that King Jesus leads us into a new era where this loss becomes the source of new life. It's in embracing how limited and powerless I am that I begin to see a much bigger vision of who Jesus is, that he can see what I can't. He can see past my present. He can see past my trials, and he can do what I can't, that he can create, he can speak, he can heal, he can reconcile, he can give life. And if you're a Christ follower joining us here this weekend, that beautiful truth is how your journey with Jesus began. Do you remember when you gave your life to Jesus? It was in a beautiful act of repentance. It was in you embracing King Jesus. I am powerless to deal with my sin. There is nothing I could do to bridge this gap. There is nothing I could do to bring myself back to life. Only you can deal with this sin. Only you can speak new life into me. Only you can transform me from the inside out and make me a new creation. And our life with Jesus begins with an act of dependence, not to be a one-time act, but to be the foundation from which we now flow out of. A new creation is defined by a deeper dependence. And so let's crack that open a little bit further and look at what does it mean to develop a new dependence on King Jesus? What does that look like in our rhythms? And so there in your note sheet, I wanna give you two examples. There you've got a section underneath that point that says a deeper dependence that is regularly, and that first fill-in is this, submitting control. A deeper dependence means that we are growing to be a people that are regularly submitting control to King Jesus. That we are learning to say often and always in the big, in the small, what do you want to do? And for me, one of the most important models of this, 
one of the most important models that teaches me how to do this well is the model of Jesus himself when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he was on his way to his cross and his execution, if you remember that account, he goes before his father, he goes before the Lord God, and it is highly emotional. Jesus is passionate in stating, this is what I want. I want to do it a different way, please. If there is another way, is there a way for me to not experience what is about to unfold before me, please let there be another way and hear me clearly and beautifully, Rocky Peak. This is a model that we are allowed to be before Jesus and honest like that, that we are allowed to have passionate thoughts. We are allowed to have passionate opinions. We are allowed to plead passionately, please, this is what I want to see happen and we should be in that posture regularly but it's also what Jesus then does that continues is at the foundation is that he pleads passionately with the Lord God and then he says not my will but yours what does he model trust he models that God is in control despite what I can't see, despite my shortcomings, you are in control. And so I will submit my control to you. And so Rocky Peak, we can together look at any crisis, can't we? Whether it's issues with this pandemic and life reopening and how we should or shouldn't approach that, whether it's issues politically or with our economy, whether it's issues like race, as Michael so beautifully addressed and prayed over. There are many issues in our lives where we find ourselves saying, this is what we should do. Do you have any opinions like that right now about different things? in which you would passionately affirm, this is what we should do. This is the right thing to do. This is the way forward. This is what makes sense to me. And hear me, having a passionate opinion is not wrong. Having that passionate opinion in and of itself, Rocky Peak, is not wrong. But to be a people that are developing a dependence, it means that we are allowed to have these passionate thoughts, ideas, plans. They may be good, they may be great, but we need to stop and consider what I want, what makes sense to me, how I want to move forward. Whatever the situation may be, it may be good, it may be great, it may even be right. But have you considered that it is still not the way Jesus wants to do things. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? But, but I'm right. <laughs> and we may be. But maybe the timing's not. Maybe the opportunity for greater good is not. What I'm getting at is, man, we are allowed and given a freedom to have these passionate ideas and opinions. 
But the thing is, we are still limited people. And by submitting control, we are saying, this is what I want. This is what makes sense to me. This is what I think we should do. But King Jesus, I acknowledge that you see another way that will unleash new life and unleash your kingdom in a beautiful and bigger way. And I think to illustrate this, it's important that we take a look at the disciples themselves. The disciples very much represented the state of the Jewish people. At the time that Jesus came, the state of the Jewish people living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And again, if you study even a little bit of what it was like to be Jewish in the Roman Empire, this was not easy. This was a time of constant suffering and oppression. Yes, they were allowed back into their land, so to speak, but they were racially, they were culturally, they were religious exiles at the, at the foot of Rome. And so amongst the Jewish people, there were passionately strong opinions of how they are to deal with Rome, how they are to make sense of their current situation. And so we have these different camps. There was a group of people, probably the ones that we are the most familiar with, that had come through their pain and suffering to put a filter on the Messiah, that they had expected that God's Messiah would come and he would establish a physical kingdom. They were expecting that the Messiah Messiah would come and to be a conquering general, that he would lead the Jewish people right into Rome, that he would topple the Caesars, he would topple the pagan gods, he would establish a physical kingdom for their people in which they could live in peace and harmony as themselves. That was the way that made sense. Then there was another group of people that passionately what made sense to me, them, was we can't beat Rome. So let's not even try, let's just give in. And they became part of the empire itself, walking away from their culture, walking away from their faith. In fact, a key example of this is Levi or Matthew, the man that Jesus approaches and calls to be one of the disciples. And there was a third passionate view that made sense to a group of people that the only way we're gonna be able to live is to completely separate ourselves from Rome or anything that is Roman or Greek, anything that is unholy. And so they went out into the wilderness and created communes and basically created walls to shut everything else and go, this is gonna be our little place. This is where we will be. This is what makes sense. There was a fourth passionate opinion group of people that what made sense to them was that Rome was an oppressive government that was stopping the Lord God Almighty and the Lord God would not want that. Therefore, the best way they could serve the, they could serve the Lord God was by literally destroying the Roman government, by killing and assassinating Roman officials, the hierarchy, by establishing that they are in the wrong by shedding their blood. And you might be familiar, they were often referred to as the zealots. And again, if if you're familiar with that word, it's because Jesus called a zealot to be part of his disciples. Now I gotta do a quick sidebar on that. 
If you were to look at a political spectrum, Matthew, the tax collector, having given his allegiance to Rome, Simon, the zealot, hating Rome so much that he wants to kill and assassinate them, they are as far away as you can get on the political spectrum. And what does Jesus do? He calls them both to lay aside what made sense and to live in a new world. And ultimately, what did Jesus do when he came himself? He didn't support any of those views. What did he bring with him? A new way, one that no one saw coming. He brought and inaugurated a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that seemingly at times made no sense even to his closest followers. What they would be, wait, 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 Go, let me get this straight. You need to die? You're the Messiah and you're gonna die? No, that doesn't make sense. And they would fight and they would clash. And yet Jesus' way unlocked a much bigger picture that Jesus may not have toppled the physical kingdom of Rome, but the church of Jesus has outlasted the Roman Empire and any other empire, not because we went to war, but because our hearts were transformed. The kingdom that Jesus inaugurated some 2,000 years ago is transforming eternity still to this day. And it was a new way that none of us saw coming. There in your note sheet, I put from Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul. And he says this, however, I consider my life worth Nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And he's not saying that he's worthless, but if I were to paraphrase, he's saying, family, I tried to be in control. I did. But I didn't experience life until Jesus took control. Now, that's the only place I want to be, saying and living that Jesus is king and that he is in control. And so before we go to the second film, is there an area, a difficulty, a conflict, a hurt, a crisis, a suffering in which you feel the spirit stirring and saying we might need to submit control to our king? Spend time with him and search that. And your second fill-in is a deeper dependence means declaring that Jesus is king and I am not. <laughs> declaring that Jesus is king, that I am not. I'm tempted to think that I'm right all the time. And you know it doesn't help that? is that sometimes I am right. <laughs> and God uses that, and that can be a good thing. But again, no matter how right I am, <laughs> no matter how good or great my ideas or thoughts are, I still will never be able to see or do what only King Jesus is. And the beauty of this point, the beauty of this new era, is that the bigger my view of Jesus is, the more freedom I'll experience in my life. We see throughout scripture that often God's people come to him and plead 
what is going on? Why is this happening? What are you doing? And that often the response of God is beautifully, I am God and you are not. If you were with me a couple of weeks ago in Habakkuk, we really explored that. And we mentioned then, as I'll do now, that God's response is not antagonistic. He's not bullying or picking you. His response is not meant to minimize hurt or the pain that you're going through, but in saying, I am God and you are not, he is beautifully calling you to remember that I have got this and I have got you. And to find rest in that. And we can rest in knowing that our beautifully massive Jesus is in control. And so scripture helps us remember just how big God is. And there from the Old Testament, I have a couple examples from the book of Job. When God tells Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Where were you when I created all things? Tell me if you understand. (laughs) I can't even begin to. And then as we move on to the book of Habakkuk, for I am gonna do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Further down, Habakkuk chapter two, woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. In other words, God is saying, can any of you give life? Can any of you create? Can any of you tell to the wood or the stone, come alive? I can. I did it with you, and I will continue to do it in your life, in your community, in your world, in your times of beauty and happiness and peace, and in your times of suffering. And with that, that leads me to our third truth of this new era, your last villain is that a deeper dependence unleashes us to expand Jesus' kingdom. A deeper dependence unleashes us to expand Jesus' kingdom. Again, these believers that we're reading about, they were not superheroes. They were not perfect. They were just like you and I are now in this moment. They were hurting and broken. They were angry and frustrated. They had lost their freedoms and their cultural comforts. They were sad and depressed. They were experiencing loss. Ultimately, they were now in a world that they no longer knew, they didn't recognize, and no longer made sense. But what made all the difference in the world is that they became radically dependent. And it was through that dependence that they were unleashed. It was through them going, I don't know how to move forward. I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but I know that now, in this moment, Jesus is king. He is good. He is in control. And if I have nothing left, I have that. And that's all I need. And so Rocky Peak, that same vision is for you Jesus is not waiting for you to get out of your crisis and trials to unleash you. He wants to breathe new life in you now. 
in your physical locations, in your homes, in your marriages, with your children, with your friends, in your neighborhood, when you're in line to get into Trader Joe's. He wants to breathe new life into your emotional location. His love wants to transform your sadness and anger and frustration, your depression. He wants to unleash a new movement in you. And being unleashed is not predicated on perfection, but on dependence. And so as we close out our time, Rocky Peak, this isn't on your note sheet, but I want to, I want to ask you to reflect on one key question. This season, this time, is transforming you. The question is, what is it transforming you into? Will you look back on this season and say that this was a season that transformed me into an angrier, into a more hateful, into a less empathetic, into a more frightened, into a more defeated person? Or will you follow the leading of King Jesus and look back and say that season in the midst of loss transformed me into a more dependent Christ follower. And through that I experienced and was unleashed with a new life. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come out. And as they do, as we get ready to transition into this final time of singing, I specifically asked if they would sing a song that we sang several weeks ago. We've sung it a few times here in our weekend services called Defender. It was a song that I really became familiar with a few months ago uh, as it was part of our high school winter camp. And specifically, I feel like the Lord brought this song to this teaching because there's a phrase in it that gets repeated over and over that it is so much better your way. And so isn't that beautifully the heart of what we've just seen through the word of God. And so I wanna invite you as we go into this time of worship, let that be the declaration, whether you need to quietly receive, whether you need to stand and loudly belt out or do something in between. Let this be a time in which we together as the family of God unleash a new movement by saying it is so much better your way. And as we go into this time, as I pray, there in your note sheet, I put an incredible proverb and I'd like to read that over you, Rocky Peak. So I'm gonna invite you wherever you are to close your eyes. And I want you to hear from Proverbs 3, the voice of our King. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. And Jesus, I don't have much else to add to that. That is our prayer, to lean into you, your authority, your wisdom, and your control. And as we sing this song, let it be a declaration of that truth. And it is in your name, King Jesus, that we all said, amen.